James 1, 17 to the end of the chapter. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and abounding naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed, or blessed in his doing. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridle not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. We are grateful, Heavenly Father, for the word of God. And as we come this morning, we want to do exactly what we were remembering last night. We want to come like Samuel. We want to come with childlike hope and trust and say speak Lord for thy servant heareth speak to us from your word and give us the help the encouragement the correction the edification whatever it is that we need in order to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ we thank you for him we thank you for our brothers and sisters We pray for each family, each person represented here this morning. We pray for those who don't know you, who are our neighbors and friends and family, that you will continue to speak to their hearts also. But now we ask you especially, Lord, to be with us. We know you are, for you promise where two or three are gathered together in your name, there are you in the midst. Give us the spiritual sensitivity to sense your presence and to appreciate it and to hear your voice speaking to us through the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I thought it would be good this morning to go through this passage and think about the Christian and his Bible. Because this whole passage, really, from 17 down to the end of the chapter, is talking about the Word of God. It it gives us that under different figures. The first figure you have is that of a gift, he says in verse uh, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, you might just take that in a generic sense and say, well, he's just talking about gifts, every good gift. Well, in one sense, he is. But he's leading to something. And as you, go, as you work through the passage, you see that the introduction of the word gift here is not just a, some kind of a loose uh, comment or abstract comment about gifts. He's introducing the thought of the Word of God as a gift, a good gift and a perfect gift that comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness. There's no uh, changing and no shadow of turning with him. No eclipse, no phases like the moon, no shadow of turning with God. Some people say, well, but he's really talking about the Lord Jesus. Well, the Lord Jesus came down from the Father of lights, didn't he? And he is as immutable as God is. What's the difference between the Word of God, the living Word, and the written Word? They're one and the same, really. The Lord Jesus is the incarnation of the Word of God, and that's why he's called that. And so it's not really any problem. But as you read here through the passage, you come to the point where you see he's talking about us paying attention to the written word of God. He says it down in verse 22, be doers of the word. He says in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted or engrafted 
word. And this is what he's talking about as he works through this passage. So, first of all, we say the word of God is a gift. And let's put that down into verses 17 and 18. Those two verses speak of God's word as a gift. Then we come to verse 19, 19, 20, and 21. And there the word of God is a graft. And he says in verse 21 in, this, in the King James, which I still read because I don't read the English Bible that much. I grew up with this Bible. I have a new King James. I'm trying to make the transition. I like it. But so far, I'm still in my old King James Bible. And he says the engrafted word. I think the new King James and the American, new American Standard say implanted, don't they? Does someone have that? Yeah, it's, this, it's the same idea. So here he's speaking about the word of God. We'll say we use the old King James, the graft, the engrafted word. Because God intends for his word not only to be treated like a gift that we receive. We'll come back to that and develop that thought. But he wants us to see it also, a gift you can hold in your hands. A graft becomes part of you. And this is what God wants his word to do in us. Not just to be something, a book we take to meeting. A book we have on the coffee table. Someone, uh, I don't know who it was, but I was told about it by a friend in Dallas. He visited in someone's home and he found they had a family Bible. A lot of people do. They had it on the coffee table. They had shellacked it. Shellac, do you still use that word? Varnish, shellac, I don't know what it was. Whatever that clear stuff is. They, it, it was open to a certain passage and shellac. It could never be. He said, well, at least they were more honest than most people because most people never read the family Bible anyway. They just open it to a passage and leave it there for years. So he figured, hey, why not preserve it that way? So that's the way it was. The shellac uh, Bible, the varnished Bible. What about the engrafted Bible? It becomes the implanted Bible, like a transplant. It becomes part of you part of your life it's with you and in you all the time he says receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls and we'll come back to that but that word save doesn't always mean uh, forgiveness from sin and salvation from hell it does mean that and and we can certainly say that's a primary meaning of the word but there is a secondary sense in which people are saved from a multitude of problems aren't they if we listen to his word If we receive it with meekness, it saves us from so many things. And that's why you have the book of Proverbs, for example, where the father there, and this is something that parents don't do very much anymore. In my home, we try to keep doing it. Uh, Our children are getting older, but we still do it. Uh, Our youngest is 13 now, and our oldest just turned 30. Uh, She's married and has children. And so we have them in the home from 22 down to 13. And we still take the Bible. We still try to eat meals together as a family and not let the family disintegrate. And we sit down together and we open up the book of Proverbs and say, well, let's see, today is the third, right? So we would open up the Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. And we read it. And then we go around the table. I might read it or I might ask somebody else to read it. And we say, now, every we go around the table. Everyone just name one thing that you got out of the chapter. One verse, one comment, something that's stuck in your mind. That's all you have to do. And when they were younger, I always asked the younger ones to go first because they don't have a very long memory for that kind of thing. And uh, they're always worried and fretting if they're going to remember a verse. you know. So I let them go first, and that gets the pressure off. And the older ones, well, they can be more flexible if somebody takes their verse, and that's always a trick you get. Oh, he used the verse I was going to use. You know? <laughs> I said, well, you say what you were going to say about it. So we do that. But in the book of Proverbs, for example, today he says, My son, forget not my law. Let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. So what is he doing? He's a father giving his son advice. Parents giving their children advice. And Proverbs is just full of practical advice about everything in life. And even those passages that talk about the immoral woman. And all of those things, we just read them. Some people say, you're going to read that to your young children? I say, I sure am. I'd rather them hear it from God's word and from me than out on the street somewhere. Every word of the Lord is pure. So we read it. And we talk about it. And so this is the, the way you bring the word of God into their life. 
And uh, this is what God is doing with us here. He says, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And not just to save you. And thank God we do find salvation. Uh, all about the work of Christ, the cross, and what he's done for us, what it means to be justified and forgiven. All of these things are there. But then there is that practical advice that saves us from so many bad decisions and, and bad, harmful relationships and situations in life if we just listen. How many times have we gone through life and at some point we said, boy, I wish somebody had told me that before. So, well, there it is. It's there. Somebody tried to tell us, but we didn't listen. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. Okay, so from verses 19 to 21, we have... The word of God as a graft, a gift and a graft. And then we come down to verse 22. And from there, really, to the end, uh, well, to verse 25, you could say. And then verses 26 and 27 are just an illustration of what he's talking about in this last section. So we can put them all together, if you like. Verses 22 to 27. This is the word of God as a glass. And the more modern translations, I think it says mirror. He says in verse 23, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. Does your version say mirror? Okay, that's good. I understand a lot about that because my father was a glass man. He had a glass shop. And we cut glass and installed glass and mirrors and and homes and windows and picture frames and we did this, I learned before I was 14 how to cut glass and how not to cut it. <laughs> and who knows how many times I cut my hands with it. But we saw that all our lives. He says he's like a man uh, beholding his natural face in a glass. And so the word of God is like a glass, a looking glass, a mirror. that You look into and you see yourself. It shows you things. I'll bet most people here looked in the mirror before they came this morning. So you see, he's using illustrations that aren't difficult for us to understand. Not using uh, what they call in the South highfalutin theological terms. (laughs) Just simple, everyday language to help us understand. And that's what he says here in the last session. God's word is a gift. It's a graft. And it's a glass. You look into it. And it tells you things about yourself. Now, a lot of people use it as a, a glass to look and see what's wrong with everybody else. You know, but that's not the way it's presented here. It's presented as something you look at to see about yourself. And when you, I have to be careful to do this when I travel. When I'm at home, I have my wife. If you don't have a mirror, you have a wife. And my wife is always telling me, uh, your collar, honey. Uh, fix your collar. And uh, you need to brush your hair, what little you have. <laughs> I just go... <laughs> that's that uh, so it tells you things about yourself and God wants us to do that he wants us to look into the glass and then he wants us to what do something about what we saw some things will be okay you look uh, and you read and you say well thank God I believe that I understand that but then there are other things that pinch that hurt a little or that make us uncomfortable or that little voice of conscience says hmm got to work on this I know I'm not there yet on this one well this is what he says don't be a forgetful hearer don't be someone who beholds his face in a glass and then goes his way and forgets what he saw the word of God is not just to look at It's not just to know things about. Uh, Not just for our knowledge. It's for our edification. To correct, to strengthen, to improve. This is the idea. And so he says, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, verse 25, and continues therein. Isn't that what the Lord told them back in John 8? If you continue in my word... Then shall you be my disciples indeed, my true disciples. You continue in my word. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his doing. I think is the best way to say that. Because that's where the blessing is. 
in doing what you see in the Word of God, in being a doer. So the Lord calls on us to be doers, but then he tells us it's the pathway of blessing. There's a book, I don't, I don't know if this book is still in print in English, I think it would be, by Andrew Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, uh, The School of Obedience. That's not a very popular book in the evangelical world anymore, I'm sure. Today we like to read books called, uh, titled things like this, How to Feel Good About Yourself. I don't know. I'm not imaginative enough to think of a lot of titles like that, but you see them, a lot of the how-to. And a lot of them are this kind of thing. Tozer said, people want to be happy, but God wants us to be holy. See. And so Andrew Murray, when he wrote this book, he, he talked about the blessing of obeying God, learning to find the blessing of obeying God. And sometimes we feel a little bit like, well, if God backs us into a corner and if everybody shows us verses and there doesn't seem to be any way out, just to get everybody off our case, we'll do it to get some relief. But that's not the kind of obedience he's talking about. It's better that than disobedience, I suppose. That's a wonderful thing to learn that that's where the blessing is. You know the old hymns, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be, to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I love those old hymns, because they have, they have a message to them, and it develops as you go through the different verses. That's a wonderful hymn, and that's a wonderful thought, and we need to remember that, and I need to remember that, and we need to talk to ourselves. Do you talk to yourself? Someone said it's okay as long as you don't answer yourself. I think I'm gone because I answer myself sometimes too. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Blessed in his doing, he says. And then he gives an example at the end uh, to talk uh, to explain what he's talking about here in this last section. If anyone among you seems to be religious, it's just one example and doesn't control his tongue. He, he bridles not his tongue but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is vain. He says in verse 26, deceives his own heart. Now go back up. And let's see, to verse 22. What did he say there? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. What? Yeah, deceiving yourselves. One problem is to, to have deceivers come in to a church or into your life, and they're on the television and the radio. Uh, another thing is to deceive yourself, and that's the problem most people have, to deceive themselves. They have some idea or some concept about themselves. It doesn't square up with what the Bible says. They live in a little dream world. They don't face squarely what the Scriptures say. They don't like to look in the mirror. I know people that, that are afraid to read certain books and passages of Scripture because they're afraid of what they might find there. So they don't do it. He says, deceiving your own selves in verse 22. And then he comes back to it. You see, this shows you that he's not going off to some other subject. These things are all woven together. And he says in verse 26, deceiving his own heart. So he's religious. A lot of people are religious. But in one of the practical points, of which the Bible has tons to say, Try this sometime. Go through the book of Proverbs and read it. Take a piece of paper and read the book of Proverbs. And don't stop on any verse to think about it except the ones that mention uh, the mouth, the tongue, the speech. Any variation of that thought. And just make a list. Let's see how many pieces of paper you fill up. Just put, put down Proverbs 1, 8, or, and it's, that's not one of them, but just write down the the reference, and go on to the next one. And every time you come to one, just stop long enough to write down the reference and see how many pieces of paper or how many rows of text you write down. You'll be amazed at how much the book of Proverbs alone has to say about that. So, so he gives us an example of something that the Bible has a lot to say about, and not just in Proverbs, all through the Scripture. So he says he's religious, but he doesn't control his tongue. He says his religion is vain. 
And then he comes to the, the good example in verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father, because that's what really counts, is how God sees it before God and the Father, is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, those are examples of things that the Scripture tells us that we ought to do. As far back as the book of Deuteronomy, and especially in the Old Testament, there is this um, teaching that comes up over and over again about the stranger or the foreigner. Uh, The foreigner, the widow, the fatherless or the orphans. And the Levites, the Levites, because they were a people that God didn't give them a a portion in Israel. He said the Lord is their portion. All the rest of the tribes had a a, a huge piece of land, a region, like you would say, maybe here a little bigger than a county. And all of that belonged to them. Well, the Levites were all in cities. They had 48 cities that they were in, but that was it. They didn't have any area. They were scattered all through Israel. And they were told the sacrifices and offerings brought to the Lord That and the Lord himself is the portion of the Levites. So there were certain sacrifices that people brought. And uh, part of the sacrifice was eaten by the priest. God instructed it to be done that way. And part was offered to the Lord and part was eaten by the priest and the offerer, a fellowship offering, you might say. And so they lived from these kind of things. That was it. So the Lord told them in the Old Testament, take care of the Levites. And there was a day where they had to bring a tithe. And they had to bring the first fruits, uh, the tithe of everything that they had uh, harvested in the, in the fields, countryside, and, and pile it up there in the city and say to the Levites, come and eat. And, and let them eat and take their fill. And then they said, and then you will raise your hand and you will say to the Lord, I have, I have fed the Levite. I have, I have given the Levite the tithe. I can't remember exactly how it is in English, but it's this Kind of a thing. They had to affirm that they had done what the Lord said they should do. And he said the widows, because no one takes care of them. They they don't have a husband. And sometimes they don't have children to take care of them. They're they're defenseless people. And in those times, there were were no lawyers uh, who took care of cases of women. (laughs) They were just left to their own devices. And everyone took advantage of them. And so you have the Levites. You have the widows. You have the fatherless. You don't have anyone to take care of them. And then you have the foreigners. And if you've never lived in a foreign country, it's probably hard for you to understand what it's like. I've been living in one for 20 years, and I lived overseas before that in Turkey and have been in many countries where you see right away that if someone wants to take advantage of you, they can because you don't know the ins and outs of that country. They, uh, you go to the airport and you change the money and right away you don't know if you got the right change or not. You don't know what the money is. And they look at you and, uh, the prices are written. Uh, you know, I went to Egypt and the prices are written in Arabic and I tried to learn the Arabic numbers so that I, you know, so that I would at least know what the prices were. But sometimes they don't put the price and they just tell you, oh, it's so much. Uh, because why? You're a foreigner. In Albania, they have a rule or saying among them, it says foreigners pay eight times more. In India, uh, I was there many years ago, and the young man that was taking me around needed some sandals, and I said, I'd like to have some sandals, so let's get two pair. I'll get one for you and one for me. He said, okay. I said, you go bargain for them because you'll get a lower price. So I gave him the money. And uh, he went and got the sandals, and he came back with his and mine. And he said, uh, mine were 10 rupees and yours were 13. I said, why? And he said, white skin tax. (laughs) That's what they call it. You're a foreigner. You're a foreigner. So so that's that's what happens. So you have the foreigners, you have the orphans, the widows, And the Levites. And when you're thinking about this verse here, you have to remember James is writing primarily, uh, as he writes this epistle, to Jews, Jewish people, believers who are scattered all around the world of that day, to us also. But his first line of thought, you might say, is to his own people. And they know what the scriptures say. He says, now, if you want to do what God says, if you don't want to be just a hearer, but a doer, this is what you're going to do. Visit the fatherless and the widows 
And, he says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. Now, there's something practical. There's something that you can measure and see I'm doing it or I'm not. It's not just thinking nice thoughts or having the warm, fuzzy feeling, someone said, about God. It's doing what God said. And there's blessing in that. There's blessing in worshiping God. But do you know there's a blessing simply in keeping yourself unspotted from the world? Now, you've heard me say before, talking about this, how I like to eat spaghetti. And, I, and every time we serve spaghetti, my family's all watching to see when Dad's going to get the spot on him. And sometimes my girls, they love to tease. Sometimes they'll come and, and put the apron over me or wrap a sheet around me. or they, We're always joking and teasing. And so they'll do this, and uh, they're, they're watching and it's almost inevitable. Very few of the times I don't get it on me somewhere. <laughs> you have to be careful. We live in a world that's so easy in so many different ways to get stained or spotted by the world. What they say, what they do, you don't have to take part in it. You can just sit and watch it and be entertained by it, and your mind is being polluted just by that. Your thoughts, your values are all being affected. The constant bombardment of these things, you see. Keep yourself unspotted from the world, he says. Okay, let's go back to the top and work our way through in a little more detail. We have until 11, is that right? Okay. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's word is a gift. Now let's just think about that. What does he say about the gift here? He gives us some words that describe the qualities of this gift. And what's the first one? Good, he says, every good gift. It's not like the little girl who, I, I think it was a ceramic egg her aunt gave her for her birthday. And she was like eight. And she didn't think a lot of the gift. But her mom had taught her she had to write thank you notes. So she wrote a thank you note to her aunt. She said, dear auntie, she said, thank you very much for the ceramic egg. I have always wanted one, but not very much. <laughs> as far as she was concerned, it wasn't a good gift. <laughs> Every good gift. And you know, sometimes I wonder, sometimes God doesn't uh, hear us thinking something along that line. You know, Thank you very much for the Bible. I've always wanted one, but I prefer a Mercedes. Uh, the good gift. Good, nothing evil in it, nothing wrong in it. Uh, in Romans 12, 1, he tells us that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. And where do we find the will of God? The good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Right here. Right here. Because that's what this book is. The book can't be anything else. Because the book is a reflection in words of the one who is good, is going to be like its author. Every good gift, and he says, every perfect gift. Now, I like that word perfect, because here this brings us a little closer to, to a subject that is dear to my heart, which is the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. This is a very important point. And when I moved to an area uh, to begin ministering there, uh, planning an assembly, or in, our, in the case where we are now in Seville, where there was an, an existing church, a small existing church we're trying to help strengthen and build up, one of the first things we do is we, uh, I teach about the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. We might say we, we set what the rules are going to be, how things are going to work. And we come to an agreement the beginning. This book is written by God. This book is perfect. This book doesn't have uh, things that are only for that culture and so forth and so on. This book is God has given us what he wants us to know and to do. 
And the book is perfect. So we're going to agree about this. If the Bible says we ought to do something, that's it. I don't care what everybody else is doing. We're not going to do like this. Read the Bible and then, like in the World War II submarine movies, up periscope. What's he doing? Looking for where the enemy ships might be. See, and we do this. We read the Bible and we say, well, it says here not to lay up any treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. That can't mean what it says. Let's see if anyone else is doing it. Oh, it looks to me like everyone else that calls himself a Christian is laying up treasures on earth. Okay, down periscope. I'm going to lay up treasures on earth too. Everybody else is doing it. In such and such a church, they do this. In such and such, in such and such a person, and I read such and such a commentator, and he said, what about this? What about what God said? It's a perfect gift. People make mistakes. God never makes a mistake. I'd much rather trust the counsel and direction of my life to someone who never makes a mistake. And this is what it's all about, really. It's not really about if we understand the counsel that God gives us. It's not really about that. Now, I'm not against understanding, meditating on, and, and saying to the Lord, teach me, give me understanding. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. But sometimes there are things that still we don't understand. It's not all about understanding it. It's not all about knowing how it's all going to work out in the future. It's about trusting. Does God know more than I do? Does God ever make mistakes? Does God trick people? Does he deceive people? Does he manipulate people? Does he have some flaw in his character? And we say, well, he has a lot of good things to say, but, you know, he, he, he's kind of, this is his kind of a hobby horse. Is God like that? No, he's not. So, why don't we trust him? See, it's about trust. If God says it in his word, if this is a perfect gift that's come down from God, then I don't read this with mental reservations. I don't read this with spiritual reservations, with emotional reservations. I come to it with trust. I say, what God says, I might not understand it. And in my flesh, I might feel, boy, I just don't know if I can do that. But if God says that's the way it ought to be, then that's enough. We sing it. It's easy to sing. God said it. I believe it. And we have to stop right there. Because not everybody can say that settles it for me. I hope everybody here today can. But we're great motorboaters, aren't we? But, 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 but. We don't just like to say, that's it. God said it. We, we come back with the but, and we'll come to that in a minute here. Every good gift and every perfect gift, the word of the Lord has no errors. It has no faults. It has no missing parts. Now, you realize that um, in Roman Catholicism, they don't believe that the Bible is all we need. You realize that? What does the church, the Catholic church, the Roman church, teach? It teaches that there are two words of God. The written word, and then the, the unwritten word, which they call tradition. Which is, and this almost sounds Hindu when they say it. They say it's in the collective consciousness or the collective memory of the church. That sounds like uh, Mahatma Gandhi said that, you know. What is the collective memory of the church? What do they mean by that? And the teachings and the writings of the fathers and all of these things. What they really mean is anything that we do that isn't in the Bible, we defend it by going back to what John Doe back in the year 800 said. Well, I don't care what John Doe said back in the year 800. And I don't like to call those men the church fathers, Polycarp and, and other men of his time, Arrhenius. Uh, they were godly men, but they're not the church fathers. What do they mean by that? And the Lord plainly says in the, in the New Testament, call no man your father. 
He's not talking about your physical father. He's talking about using that term in a spiritual and a religious sense to call some man that. Spiritually, religiously, if you want to use it that way, the father is God. The church doesn't have any fathers and doesn't have any mothers. Mary's not the mother of the church, you see. So they use this. They, they have the written word and they pay lip service to it. But anytime it conflicts with anything they do, they appeal to the unwritten word, to tradition. And to the famous rule of Roman Catholicism, the, the, the concept of the magisterium. You know that word, the magisterium? And the magisterium means that the church uh, is authorized and gifted by God to teach. It means the ability to teach. In fact, in Spain, when a person goes to university and studies uh, to be a teacher, for example, to get their teacher certificate or something like that, they call that magisterio. It's the same word, magisterium. So the, uh, the doctrine of magisterium means, uh, and if you get into Catholicism and all, if you come from it, you know what I'm talking about probably. Although American Catholics don't know as much about Catholicism as European Catholics. American Catholics are kind of on a long leash. That's the way the church keeps them in. It kind of lets them do whatever they want to. But at any rate, magisterium means the church has the unique authority and ability to tell people what the Bible means. So you don't, you can read the Bible under Vatican II, you can read, and you're encouraged to read the Bible. But you can't understand it without a priest, without the church, because no one but the priest know what the Bible means. You want to find out how fast the, the priests don't know what the Bible means, open it up to any passage and start asking questions. They don't know what it means. But they follow this simple rule of magisterium. Rule number one. We had this rule, by the way, when I was a flight instructor. I didn't know it was, and I'm teasing, of course, they don't really state it this way. But when I was in uh, pilot training, training student pilots, we had uh, two rules for student pilots put up on the wall there. Rule number one, the instructor is always right. Rule number two, in the event that the instructor appears to be wrong or mistaken about something, see rule one. <laughs> and of course, that was a, our way of having fun with the student pilots. But sometimes when we'd be arguing with them about something, we'd just say, rule one, see rule one. Well, this is the way they do it. You see, the church is always right. Magisterium. And in the event that church appears to be wrong about something, see rule one. And we turn this around and we say, God is always right. And if there's something you don't understand or, or particularly desire to do, if there's some conflict there, just remember, God is always right. Trust him. He never made a mistake with anyone who trusted him. You see, sometimes we can sincerely put our trust in someone down here on this earth, and that person can sincerely want to do us good and help us, but that person can make a mistake. Because there might be other factors that they don't know about, that they can't take into account. Maybe they don't have any experience on this particular thing. Maybe it's, there's an unknown quantity there. There's any number of things. Emotions can become involved sometimes. But not with God. He doesn't have any of those problems. There's no factors that he doesn't take into consideration. He has perfect knowledge. And his love and his goodness, every good gift and every perfect gift, they don't allow him to do those kind of things, make the kind of mistakes we make. He doesn't do that. He can't do it. So there's the person we ought to trust. And he's given us a good and perfect gift, he says. Come down from above. It didn't come from the church. The church didn't give us the Bible. I would say the church came out of the Bible, grew out of the Bible, came from the Word of God. And the Word of God didn't come from the church. No, sir. Every good and perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. The Word of God comes to us from someone who is, and this is what he's saying here, who is not changeable. He doesn't change the rules as he goes along. It's not one thing today and another thing tomorrow. Uh, like some of these uh, televangelists who get on television and when their funds are down and they, they wear 
uh, a dark uh, gray shirt and uh, their hair is messed up in a dark coat and they're so sad and the devil is attacking us and you need to send more money and I'm going up into the prayer tower and if you don't send five million dollars, God is going to take my life. I would have said in Spanish, adelante, go right ahead. (laughs) God doesn't do that. It says no shadow of turning. And another thing that this means about it is that you don't have to worry. This gift that has been given to us doesn't have any, um, what's this word we use in English? Expiration date. doesn't have one. God is immutable. And so uh, we might write a book. In fact, I've done that. I don't write uh, too much in English, but I have some in Spanish, and Adel has them, I think. You have them, yeah, yeah. One of them is called The Form of the Church. It talks about all the different forms, uh, the figures of the church that are shown to us in the Scriptures. The church is a wife. The church is a bride. The church is God's building. The church is God's cultivated field. Uh, the church is his priesthood. All these different forms of the church. Well, when I wrote this, I think I put uh, 11. I've been studying and uh, writing them all down. And not too long ago, we started to go through this in the church in Seville, taking them up on Sunday two or three at a time. And as I went through it, I said, well, ooh, there's 14 here. How come I didn't see those others before? So I started with 11, now I have 14. Because I'm still learning. But God isn't. There's no appendix to the Bible. (laughs) He wrote it all right and complete the first time. You see, he says it is perfect. The perfect gift come down from above. From someone that isn't changeable. And you can trust it. If the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, so is the word of God. And it can be trusted in every age. Now, we don't like to say, and it's not right to say, oh, well, that was written to the Corinthians back then in the first century and so forth and so on. I said, listen, an immutable and unchangeable God wanted to give to his people a perfect gift. And he did it. And he knew how to do it. And he succeeded in doing it. And we shouldn't come to it with any of these reservations or any, or any of these... Um, Sometimes I call them these get-out-of-jail-free cards, you know, where the Bible tells you something you ought to do, and you reach into your pocket and you pull out your get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, that was written to the Galatians, and we super-contextualize it. Now, nobody is more in favor of, of following the Scriptures in context than me. You know about the abuse of context? The abuse of context is the over-restriction of Scripture by limiting it to the time and the situation in which it was written. And that is a, an abuse that is becoming all too common among evangelicals. That's not what God intended for us to do. The things that were written, we talked about that last night, in the Old Testament were written for our admonition. They were written to exhort us and to admonish us, to teach us upon whom the ends of the age have come. So, those things are written not just to inform us, but to teach us and to show us how to live. It's a perfect gift. And so he says in verse 18, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. How are we born again? What does 1 Peter 1.23 say? Have you had that? And somebody here surely has memorized that, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. It's impossible To come to salvation simply on the basis of feeling. Salvation and being born again is not a feeling. John Denver, that singer, I don't know where he is today, but I remember back when I was a new believer, with the years we were still in the Air Force, hearing him, um, I think back in those days he had a television program. I don't really have a very clear memory of where I saw it or heard it, but at any rate, he he got on somewhere and was talking about his born-again experience. Smoking pot up on one of the mountains and sleeping out under the stars. And they saw this meteor shower. And he said, it was so exhilarating. Of course, anything would have been exhilarating 
in the condition he was in. A pack of dogs could have walked through and barked, and he would have thought that was a deeply profound spiritual experience. <laughs> but he said, anyway, he said, and, and we looked at it, and we smiled, and we laughed, and we cried. And, and that's my experience, born again. And I said, yeah, just like in the book of Acts, right? To myself, with all my sarcasm. Born again, just like Jesus said, smoking pot and watching a meteor shower up on the mountains. God doesn't save us by working on our feelings alone. Salvation is not primarily an emotional experience. There are emotions. And don't misunderstand me. I don't want to be misunderstood about this. So if you don't understand, you talk to me afterwards and we'll clarify it. I want to clarify it now, though. We do feel things. Joy and salvation, relief, a sense of relief. Our sins are forgiven. But salvation is not primarily an emotional experience. It takes place in heaven, not in my nervous system. Salvation is when God forgives my sin, when he justifies me. All my sins are taken away. And he looks at me now with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Salvation takes place. Our justification is something that God declares in heaven. When he declares the person who trusts in Christ to be righteous, to be forgiven, to be righteous because they trusted in the Lord. See, that's something God does. Now, it affects my emotions, but it is not primarily an emotional experience. And God doesn't save people who don't come to him by the gospel. You need to know the gospel is a message that has content. The word of truth. He caused us to be born again by the word of truth. You have to know the message of the gospel. Oh, but I know someone. You always get these stories. No, 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 no. The Ethiopian eunuch. He'd been to Israel. He'd been to Jerusalem. He'd been to the temple as far as a person who wasn't an Israelite could go. He had the scriptures. He was reading them, but he wasn't understanding them. And God sent Philip down there on that road by Gaza to wait for that man to come by on his chariot. He got up into the chariot, and it just so happened the man was reading in Isaiah 53. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless some man explain it to me? He says, what does he mean here when he says he was wounded for our transgressions? Is he talking about himself or some other man? So he needed to understand the message. And it says, Philip, beginning at that passage, preached unto him Christ. He needed the information. Cornelius was a man, and we'll study him sometime. He, the angel, came and said, your prayers are heard in heaven. He gave alms. It says he tried to be righteous. He tried to be a good man. All these things. And what happened? The angel said, you send for Peter, and Peter will come and tell you what you need to do to be saved. You can see a vision of an angel and still go to hell. Because visions and emotional experiences do not save people. What saves people is when they trust, when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, he saves them. Experiences do not save them. If somebody here or somebody listening who's trusting in an experience, when, you, when we say, why do you think you'll go to heaven or why do you hope to go to heaven when you die? And if you say, because I had this experience, you better be careful. Because the only money that's any good at the gate of heaven to get in is this, this coin. Jesus paid for all my sins on the cross at Calvary. And so the Bible gives us that, doesn't it? It gives us the word of truth from beginning to end. It explains to us the gospel. And we need the gospel in order to be saved. It is by the gospel we're born again, by the word of God, <clears throat> that we should be, he says, the kind of first fruits of his creatures. We should be consecrated, especially devoted and dedicated to the Lord. Of all his creatures, those of us who have been born again, of all creation, we who have been saved by the grace of God should be the most committed to him. Our lives should be like those first fruits offered to God, taken and given especially to God. This is what he says. So, that's the gift. It doesn't change. It enlightens us. It's perfect. It's good. You can't leave it sitting on the table. 
What do you do with a gift when somebody gives you a gift? What do you do, Shirley? Yeah, you say, oh, what lovely wrapping paper. And sometimes we do. My kids don't. They go, <laughs> get all of that off. They're not interested in the wrapping paper. But sometimes, you know, we like it. And sometimes, just to be polite, we spend a moment, oh, look, and the bow and this and that. And all the time, our mind is thinking, I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is, you know. So we take the wrapping paper off and we open the box to see what it is, to get it out. You don't leave it in the wrapping paper. You have a Bible. You have the perfect gift from God. What do you do with it? Has everyone here read it through? You know, I read it six times from cover to cover before I got saved. I must really be dense. I just It's hard for me to understand people who go years and years in the Christian life and they have never read the Bible. It's a good and perfect gift. And there are so many things in here, everything in here, you need to know. See, and the only way to know it is to take the wrapping off and open it up and use it. That's what God gave us this gift for. He calls it a graft, and we'll just spend a couple of minutes on that. He says, now, uh, you need to receive it, he says down in verse 21. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. That means don't reject the implant, the transplant. Don't reject it. Receive it. Let it grow. Let it come in you and let it become part of you. But to do that, you have to go back to verse 19. What do you have to do? Well, you have to be, he says, let everyone be swift to hear. Slow to speak. And slow to wrath. That means, first of all, listen and calm down. We talked about listening last night, didn't we? How important it is to listen. Let everyone be swift, be in a hurry to listen to what God says. And the Lord says, oh, if my people had only listened to my voice. Well, I want to be one of those. And we should each say that. By the grace of God, I'm going to be that. I want to learn to shut up and listen When I come to the scriptures, it's time for God to talk. It's time for me to listen. He knows more than I do. Do, Can we all agree on that? That God knows more than us? That, That we don't have anything to teach God, although we try to sometimes in prayer. Now, Lord, and we begin to explain the whole situation to him. And why we need for him to make this sister or this brother do this or that. And how it all has to work out. We explain God is so patient. He listens to us. And sometimes it's like therapy. And it's good for us to communicate with God, to tell him what we feel and what we think. That's fine. But we don't need to tell him what to do. We don't need to suggest to him. Now, it would be good if you would, we could just pray and say, Lord, this situation needs to be resolved. I, I can't tell you how to do it. I can just ask you to do it. I think I know what needs to be done. But you're the one who knows. So speak, Lord. And we should be slow to speak. And that means slow to say, but, 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 to interrupt. People do this. You know, you say, well, now the word says, do not, I'm going to come back to that example. Uh, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. (laughs) But, but now it can't mean that because, but, but, and and here they come, the motorboats. Just relax. God's not going to trick you. God's not a charlatan. Just relax. Don't speak. Listen to what he has to say. Let it sink in. And he says that to them in the New Testament, doesn't he? Let these words sink down into your ears. Don't be in such a hurry to say anything. It is very important as a believer to learn to be calm and receptive to the word of God. Let God speak and let the word in. Slow to wrath. Don't be upset. Don't be angry. And and the word of God often will speak to us about things in our lives. And they can upset us. And sometimes when someone else quotes a verse of scripture to us, that might happen in that case to be just what we need. But we didn't want to hear it from that person. Nevertheless, it's the word of God. Let God choose which messenger he sends. Say, here comes the angel Gabriel. Say, what, you again? If God wants to send the angel Gabriel once, twice, three times, he can send it as many times as he wants. If God wants to speak to us through a brother or a sister, let him do it. It's his messenger. God speaks to us through his word. 
Don't be angry about it. Don't be upset. Great peace have they who love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Psalm 119.165. You love the word of God. There's nothing to be upset about. God loves you. God's not trying to make your life miserable. You can be certain of that. Nobody loves you more than he does. So, this is a non-productive emotion. He says that in verse 20. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You're not going to get anywhere that way. The wrath of man. Human wrath. See, all that does is work against what God is trying to do. Bring righteousness into our lives. His righteousness. So he says now, uh, he's continuing his advice about the things we have to do to receive the engrafted word. You want the graft to grow? Want the word to become part of you? Lay apart or lay aside, he says, all uh, filthiness. What does it say in the New King James? Does it use that word or the New American Standard? Verse 21. Uh Uh-huh. Moral filth and abounding malice. Does it say malice? Evil, okay, same idea. And this is it. Something you have to lay aside. That's your job. Don't say, oh, Lord, we talked about this before, you know, how we take things God tells us to do and we turn them into prayer requests. Oh, Lord, please take this away from me. The Lord says, "Uh uh-uh. Take off your coat. No angel is coming to take your coat off. No angel is coming to get that piece of lint off of you. You do it. And he says, you lay aside these things. The word of God, how is it going to coexist in an environment that's full of immorality, wickedness? And this bombardment we get from the world around us every day creates in our hearts and our minds oftentimes conditions where the word of God cannot grow. I want to tell you something. I don't know if you're going to like this, but I I want to be honest with you. There's a price to pay. There's a price to pay to understand the Word of God and to be blessed by it. And that price is you can't live in the world. I mean, you're in it, but you know what I'm saying. You can't live like the world. You can't let your soul, let your emotions, let your mind, your thoughts feed on all the trash that's on television and internet, and in books, romance, novels, and all these other things. You can't have your mind be taken up and consumed with all the the money and the power and the lust of this world and have an environment where the Word of God can grow and bless you. These things have to go out. There's a price to pay. So my advice to you is, if you have something like that, some input like that in your life, Just turn it off. Just say, Lord, I'll give this up for you. I'd rather have the Bible. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And we talked about that from the book of Proverbs. But this is the idea. Just let it come in and become a part of you. And let it not only save you in the sense of forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But let it save you from all the problems and difficulties of life that we get ourselves into because we don't pay attention to what God says. And then later down the road, further down the road, we have to come back and say, you were right, Lord, I'm sorry. Now, he calls the Bible a glass, lastly. And we talked about this quite a bit at the beginning, so I'm just going to run through this quickly here. The whole idea of calling it a glass here, a looking glass or a mirror, is that we're supposed to look into the Scripture to see something about ourselves and then do something about it. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Some people don't even hear. The first class would be rejectors of the word. And then there are the hearers of the word. And then maybe you could even make a third group and say the talkers of the word. They hear it and they talk about it. They give lip service to it. Uh, The Lord said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then you have the doers of the word. It's not enough just to talk about scripture. It's to hear it and talk about it. God wants us to do it, to apply it in our lives. Not hearers only. A person who's satisfied just to go to meetings or just to read, have a devotional time each day, or or just to listen to a program. See, if you're not coming to it with this idea, I want something for me. 
God has something to say to me. God wants to give me something from my life, and I want to get it. Never read the Bible without finding a practical application for yourself. It won't always be the same. The Bible is not a book that the only thing it does is correct us and tell us what's wrong with us. The Bible doesn't do that. I mean, that's not the only thing it does. The Bible gives us instruction that we need. The Bible gives us hope and confidence. The Bible takes away our fears. The Bible deals with so many things. But you see, you have to find it. You have to take it. And I do that when I read. I say, in this passage, is there a a sin for me to forsake? Is there a promise for me to claim? Is there a commandment for me to obey? Is there a good example for me to follow? Is there a bad example for me to avoid? Is there some thought of God I should appreciate and worship? And I write that down, you know, and then I come to the end and say, now, what's my application for today? And I try to find at least one thing, not 20 things, just one that I can apply that day. Be a doer of the word. Don't look in the mirror. Suppose I'd done that this morning. I get up and I look in the mirror and I say, well, like we say in Spanish, más o menos, more or less. Suppose I'd walked in down here in my pajamas this morning. (laughs) My wife would have a heart attack. (laughs) You look in the mirror, and now you know what needs to be done. You can only do so much with the raw material you're given. (laughs) But you work on it before you go out the door. And God says, when you look into the Bible, ask the Lord, What are you trying to show me about me? What do you want to teach me about me? What do you have for me, Lord? Look in the mirror. And you know, sometimes people will stare and stare at themselves in a mirror. In a bathroom or mirror in the entryway of a house. And they'll stand there and stare and look and look. they're trying to decide which is their good side or the bad side or is that blemish gone that I need to put some more cream on that oh I'm getting a lot of wrinkles now oh I hate myself you hear people say all the time do we look like that into the word of God we got our eyes open and we're staring into it and we're trying to see if that little spot is gone or if we need to work on it some more. For what? So he looks into the perfect law of liberty. It frees us from sin. It doesn't mean it frees us to do whatever we please. It frees us from sin. It frees us from the law and the condemnation of the law. And it enables us to live to please God and to have his blessing. That's a law of liberty. We couldn't do that before. But now we can. So you look into it. And you remember what you saw, and you're a doer, not just a hearer and not just a talker. You don't go tell other people without applying it to yourself first, see. He says, this man or this person will be blessed in his doing. And then we have that wonderful example at the end. Practical Christianity. Not theoretical Christianity. D.L. Moody said most people talk cream, most Christians talk cream and live skimmed milk. And we all know what he meant by that, don't we? God wants us to live like we talk. Not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Be doers of the word. So this is what we have. We have a gift. It's a good and perfect gift. Do we accept it that way? Are we taking the wrapping paper off? Are we using it? Or are we saying, thank you very much, I've always wanted one, but not very much? With our lives, maybe. It's a graft. But is the Bible becoming that to us? Is it a living, moving part of us? Has it become part of us? Or is it a book that stays in a place where I go and read at a certain time? Or is it something that I'm constantly referring to? I carry it with me as a part of my life. It's in my mind. It's a part of me. Thy law is in my heart. Can we say that like the psalmist said? And it's a glass. And we're looking into it. And the whole purpose of looking into it is to show us what needs work. And do we come to it that way? 
And every time we have a Bible study, and every time we have a, a quiet time, a devotional time, are we saying, okay, Lord, speak to me. Give me something for me. And you go away with it. I got it. I know what I need to do. It might just be I need to stop worrying about this and trust the Lord or hope in the Lord. It might be that. It might be something that needs to be corrected. It might be some promise you just saw in the Scriptures that you never knew about that fills your heart with hope. But whatever it is, you take it and you say, this is what God gave me now. Sometimes it might be more than one thing. You might have a whole page full of things. But you've got to at least have one. You've got to at least have something. Don't just be a hearer. God is not interested in just having people come sit and listen in meetings. Or people who can say they read the book, even though that's a great improvement over not reading it. He wants us to be doers of his word. May the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time we've had together. We thank you for the wonderful gift we have in the scriptures. And we know it comes from you. We know it's a good and perfect gift, just as you are good and perfect. No errors, no flaws, no missing parts. Help us, Lord, to show how we trust you and how we esteem the gift that you have given us. Help us to have our hearts open to it. And help us to always take from it something for our own personal lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.